Our next speaker is Dr. Judith Courier from UCLA. Um, Judy is the Chief of Infectious Disease uh, in the Department of Medicine at UCLA. She's also the Principal Investigator of the NIH DAIDS-funded AIDS Clinical Trials Group, and she is an international uh, expert on HIV-associated complications. Um, metabolic and cardiovascular and otherwise. She's also my boss, uh, and we're very lucky to have her here today to talk to us about new agents uh, for the treatment of HIV infection. Okay, thank you, Rafi. Thank you very much. It's, it's really great to be here and to see so many familiar faces of uh, people who've been working in HIV for a long time. Um, the one thing that Rafi didn't say is that I'm not an expert in investigational <laughs> agents, although I do know a little bit about them. Um, but it's, a, it's really, I think, important to talk about the fact that there's still um, the field of antiretroviral therapy investigation. Despite the fact that we have so many good options, we still have room for, for improvement. Um, so I'm going to uh, talk today about um, some of the newer agents, and then some of the new approaches for treating HIV. Um, um, but before I do, I wanted to say after Tim's excellent talk, what a great talk that was. And having just spent the weekend working in the hospital on the inpatient service, the people that I saw in the hospital with HIV all had malignancies. And it really is kind of what's coming. So it's really good to have a, a talk on that here today. So getting, it's really amazing that we have as many drugs to treat HIV as we do, considering what goes into the development of a new drug. And this long and winding road to drug development timeline here shows the different phases between drug discovery, preclinical, and then the different phases of clinical trials, one, two, and three, regulatory review and approval. We start out with about eight um, to 10,000 compounds in the drug discovery and preclinical stage to get 250 that actually move forward to the next phase. And of those 250, about eight make it from phase one to phase three. So there's so much work that has gone into this, and we've been so fortunate in HIV to have such strong partnership in the pharmaceutical industry with people that were willing to take on this challenge. Um, you think about tuberculosis and the number of drugs we have to treat TB and the number of new drugs we've had, it just doesn't compare at all. And so we've been fortunate in, in HIV to have an active drug development. Now it's slowed down, there's no question, and there are fewer companies left, um, but they're still working really hard to continue to make advances. So today I'm going to talk about, are there any new options? Yes. Um, a little bit more about two drug therapies. We talked about that in the cases. What are options for people who can't take daily drugs? So a little bit of an update on long-acting drugs in development. And then what to do about multi-drug resistant HIV and what's on the horizon. So that's a little bit of an overview. Now, for those of you who are following along on the slides in the syllabus, um, based on a lot of the discussion that we had during the cases today, I'm going to skip over um, a, little, a few of the slides just to be able to focus on the material that we didn't cover. Um, so new drugs. Um, so there are two drugs, one that was just recently approved, Bictegravir, in February of this year, and Duravirine. Um, that are on the horizon. And because we talked so much about Bictegravir, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail, just reminding you all that it's approved for initial treatment. 
um, and can be used as a replacement in people who are virologically suppressed without treatment failure, um, even though we did have some suggestions that some treatment failure, you might be able to replace it, but not based on the data from the trials. It's once a day with or without food and reminding you not recommended if the creatinine clearance is less than 30. Um, and then it, it is active in vitro against some HIV isolates that have some integrase um, mutations, but its efficacy in people who have prior integrase um, resistance is not known. A couple important points about drug interactions with Victegravir FTC TAF. Rifampin is contraindicated, so that's really important. You can't dose adjust your way out of that. Um, and also metformin, a drug that we're using increasingly in people with HIV, with diabetes and prediabetes, the AUC has increased about 40%. Um, what does that mean? I mean, we generally think of AUCs increased around 30% or so as potentially not being clinically significant. 39%, I think we just need more data about that. Um, and then, like all of the integrase inhibitors, it is chelated by the polyvalent cations, so you have to be careful not to uh, use it at the same time. Um, people who take high doses of magnesium supplements is one thing I've seen gotten into trouble with with other uh, drugs. It's currently not recommended in pregnancy. There's insufficient data, and hopefully more will be coming soon. And then the side effects that have been reported, uh, diarrhea, nausea, and headache, and this tiny increase in serum creatinine. Um, so that's really all I'm going to say about uh, Bictegravir FTC-TAF. And what about Duravarine? It's a new NNRTI. And, you know, we really, the NNRTI, Favarin's um, triple drug combination, have been the mainstay of treatment globally and currently is today. Um, so what, what is the place for a new NNRTI? Well, this drug is active in vitro against HIV viruses that are resistant to the first-generation NNRTIs. So those would be the K103N, the Y181C, G190A. You can read the list. So, so that's good for NNRTI resistance. It can be taken once a day without regard to food, has a low potential for drug interactions, and then in the phase three studies, the first one drive forward um, was compared with Darunavir. And you can see in the graph here that it was a non-inferior in terms of virologic suppression to a, prote a boosted protease inhibitor um, and had a superior lipid profile. So those are all really promising attributes. Um, it's also been compared head-to-head -head in drive ahead uh, with um, efavirenz, FTC, and tenofovir. And this was in a phase three um, study. And the, um, it was also non-inferior to the efavirenz-based regimen in 48, at 48 weeks. So only about 10% in each arm had viral load above um, 50. And in, when people failed the deravarine combination, resistance to NNRTIs and NRTIs was very, very low. So this is in contrast to what we've seen previously with efavirenz. So it was also superior to efavirenz in terms of neuropsychologic, um, psychiatric effects and had a more favorable lipid profile. So this combination has been submitted to the FDA, um, we think, yes, and uh, we'll see if it gets approved in the next year. Uh, trying to sort of figure out where that fits into our options for treatment, uh, I think it's something that people are thinking about right now as we've really moved to integrase inhibitors for first line. Um, and maybe some head-to-head -head data with integrase inhibitors will, would help with that. 
Okay, so let's go to a case. So this uh, case is a 50-year-old with diabetes, hypertension, and renal insufficiency uh, with a creatinine clearance of 25. Um, no hepatitis B, had viral load of 30,000 and a CD4 count of 450, whose HLA B5701 positive. And you want to basically avoid a regimen that includes um, nucleosides. Um, so which of the following would you choose for this, for this patient? Go ahead and vote. And we were told that the music previously was too disruptive, so we, so the switch has been to the quieter music, and now I think it's too quiet. <laughs> So two drug regimens, here's how you voted. Um, this is really, this is very interesting and I think um, probably reflects where we have the most data, um, but more is coming soon. So the majority, 48%, or the, uh, picked the dolutegravir and rilpivirine combination. 26% um, of you liked the darunavir-dolutegravir combination and then uh, followed by dolutegravir-3-TC. So what do we know? about these no-nukes. So this was from the um, no-nukes concert, uh, sort of predicting an era of no-nukes in HIV therapy back from 1979. Um, yeah, album cover, or few nukes. Okay, so um, we heard a little bit about this in the panel today, the, the history of um, limited nuke combinations, Gardel, Lopinavir, Ritonavir with 3TC, was one of the first ones to be studied, which was non-inferior to the three-drug combination. The disadvantages of this are the high pill burden and the toxicities. Next was darunavir-ritonavir with raltegravir, which was studied in the NEAT uh, 001 trial. And this was non-inferior to darunavir plus tenofovir FTC. Um, and in those who had a CD4 count of less than uh, 200, it was inferior, however, to the, two, to the triple drug regimen. And then also, if you had viral load higher than 100,000, there were more um, virologic failures. So a little bit of concern about this particular combination in terms of patients at the extremes with either low CD4 or high <laughs> viral load. Dolutegravir 3TC has really gotten um, a lot of attention because of the studies that have been done. Um, the first one was called the PADDLE study, uh, and this was from Argentina. This was a single arm study of 20 patients with viral loads of less than 100,000, where they gave just dolutegravir and 3TC. Um, and 90% had a viral load less than 50 at, at 48 weeks, but that's a very small select sample. So the ACTG did a phase two study looking at this combination in a, a slightly more uh, higher viral load group just to see whether this was going to work in higher viral load. And this study had 120 people in it, and 90% uh, were less than 50 in viral load at 24 weeks. There was virologic failure in three people, and in one, um, there was evidence of uh, R236RK and the M184V. So, um, 
there was concern that these, based on drug levels of suboptimal adherence, but it shows there might be some vulnerability in this combination um, in, in, in some patients. And then, but now just to try to really get a sense of this, there are two studies going on, Gemini 1 and 2, which are um, looking at this for initial therapy. And I think there are potentially plans for a co-formulated single tablet with dolutegravir and 3TC without any other nukes. Um, so darunavir, ritonavir, is also being studied, and we heard about this from the CROI update, just to remind you of the ANDES trial, which looked at this compared to darunavir, ritonavir with 3TC and tenofovir, FTC. 93 to 94% were undetectable, less than 50 at 48 weeks, um, and this dual therapy was non-inferior to triple therapy at week 48. There is a larger trial ongoing, so this is another potential option. Um, and then there are a number of studies, and I think most of the data about the two drug combinations comes from the switch uh, scenario of taking people who are virologically suppressed and switching them to two drugs. And I think as Eric highlighted this morning, one of the caveats about all these studies is that they've been designed to permit or to only allow people to enroll who've never had virologic failure. And so that's great for a study population and to have sort of the lowest risk group. But I think as we look around our clinics, the people that we haven't switched their treatment, it's because they have some history of virologic failure. Or more commonly, we just don't know. They transfer their care in and you have incomplete records and you just don't know if they ever had virologic failure. Um, but there are studies, um, switch studies going up, there have been switch studies that show these two drug combinations are. Um, and then there's also darunavir, ritonavir, and dolutegravir, which some of you picked, and then dolutegravir 3TC, and a large uh, switch study called Tango, going on Tango 2, uh, for people who are suppressed, which just launched recently. So uh, the, the choice that was most uh, common, and I think this is because you're all evidence-based and this is the one combination that's actually approved, is dolutegravir and ropivirine um, based on the SWORD 1 and 2 studies. So this, these were studies that were done on people who are stable on um, their first or second ART, no switch due to virologic failure, just switch due to tolerability. Viral load less than 50 for 12 months, they randomized one-to-one -to, -one to continue on their current treatment or switch to the dolutegravir ropivirine, and it was non-inferior, the switch. And look at how well everybody did in the study, 95% um, had virologic success. This Now this dolutegravir ropivirine is available as a single tablet regimen, um, and I think that it's... It, it, I don't know how much use there's been, and uh, um, just doesn't seem like it's caught on as much, although there's good data for it, and the, um, um, it appears to be well tolerated. I think the one thing is the um, acid-lowering therapy. If you need to be on certain proton pump inhibitors, you can't take it, and you have to use alternative like H2 blocker instead, um, but it is a single tablet. Okay. So moving on to long-acting antivirals, we've been waiting for these. This is a 50-year-old with HIV and achalasia and dysphagia who has long-standing difficulty swallowing pills, virologically suppressed on the dolutegravir and ropivirine that I just talked about, and wants to know if they're long-acting medicines that he can take intermittently instead of having to take an oral regimen. 
So where do we stand on this? Uh, uh, go ahead and vote. Okay, well, 11% uh, of you think that there might be something now, um, but not yet. 71% is the right answer. Um, so the closest to uh, making its way into approval uh, is cabotegravir, the integrase inhibitor, and the long-acting formulation of ropivirine. And these uh, agents have been studied in the um, LATTE studies, LATTE 1 and now LATTE 2, um, looking at them for maintenance therapy. So this is an open-label study for people who are over the age of 18 and are naive with CD4 counts above 200, creatinine clearance above 50 and no hep B or prior um, ALT elevations. And that currently, and I think probably for the foreseeable future, the way this drug will be used is at first people have to take the oral formulation to make sure they don't have any um, either hypersensitivity or other reactions before getting an injection with a long-acting drug. And, you know, we think about long-acting therapy, one place that would be great is if we had a long-acting therapy that you could give to somebody who is newly diagnosed as an injection and then get all the pieces in place. But that's probably not going to be the case with this because of the need to establish the um, tolerance through the oral um, lead-in. So in this study, they're looking at maintenance therapy with um, IM injections of cabotegravir and ropivirine every four weeks, a higher dose of 600 milligrams um, and 900 milligrams every eight weeks or compared to just the oral therapy. Um, and there's recent update from this was pre presented, and these data are shown here. So um, the you can see that every, every the oral regimen is in the light blue, 84%, and the success rates for the every four and every eight week regimens. Um, very few people failed, and then there were some that had no um, virologic data. So we're getting closer to, um, to these drugs making it into the clinic, and I think that um, most of the data that's out there about long-acting therapy, it's very interesting when you ask clinicians whether they think that long-acting therapy given every month or every eight weeks is going to be transformative and change practice and people are going to want it. They tend to be less enthusiastic, but then when you ask people who are taking pills every day, would you prefer to get a shot every month or every eight weeks, it's overwhelmingly positive. And so I think that for us, the, the challenge is going to be, you know, what this will do to practice and how you have to organize your practice to give these drugs. And it's, um, Rafi and I were laughing about this the other day. Well, laughing isn't the right word, but when they do these investigational studies, there's so much that like the drug has to be prepared in the pharmacy and the hospital and you know that's not going to be the reality when when we roll these things out but looking towards a day where people might come in every two weeks and you know have a, a come in and get a shot and you know really transforming how um, how care is delivered and I, I don't know if we're completely ready for that but I think we should get prepared because I think people are going to want these options um, so what are the downside? The injection site reactions, uh, rare, um, but can be, I mean, transient, but can be mild to moderate. 
I mentioned really high participant satisfaction, and in the ongoing phase three studies, we expect to see results in 2018. There's also the ATLAS II study, which is every eight-week dosing. And maybe during in the question-answer time, I know, Tony, your group has done a lot of these trials in your clinic. You could maybe speak to what it's been like to give people um, long-acting drugs in an investigational setting. Okay, so there's another option on the um, horizon for a long-acting NRTI, which has uh, EFDA or MK8591. Um, and this is a nucleoside RT trans translocation inhibitor, which has a really long half-life um, and also is a very low dose, 0.5 milligrams, um, can suppress viral load for seven days. Um, it's supposed to be, you know, be able to put possibly be given in doses as low as 0.25 milligrams. And um, the data in the table just shows the dose findings, single dose study in people who are art naive showing the viral load going down and staying down. Um, there's a phase 2B study going on in people with HIV combining this with Duraverine and 3TC called the Drive 2 Simply. Uh, and in that study, they're looking at daily dosing of the drug. Um, it is um, in animals. What's really interesting about this is it accumulates in lymph nodes and in the vagina and in, rec in the rectum. And in, in, I think we saw in the data from Croy the um, protection of, uh, from monkeys from a shiv challenge expected that it may be able to um, have parenteral dosing where you give it every 6 to 12 months. Um, and also has that supports, you know, really exciting opportunity for PrEP to be able to give somebody PrEP once or twice a year. Um, ultimately, for therapy, it's going to have to be combined with something else. But, you know, I think that the point of this is to say that research and drug development to long-acting agents, both for prevention and treatment, is alive and well, and that we, you know, hopefully will continue to see these types of things move forward. Okay, so our next case, um, and fortunately we don't see genotypes like this as much as we used to. Um, this is a 60-year-old uh, woman who has HIV diagnosed in 1990 who had multiply been on previous regimens with failure um, and has resistance basically to NRTIs and NRTIs, but has retained PIs, but has retained sensitivity to in integrase inhibitors. Um, and how many people have seen a patient like this in their practice in the last year? Okay, so they're, they're out there. Um, okay, so what do you do? Um, which of the following classes of drugs is in phase three trials or, or recently approved for a patient like this? Okay, 45% uh, of you say uh, attachment or entry inhibitors, which is correct. Um, maturation inhibitors are in development but not quite ready. 
Capsid inhibitors are not yet in phase three, and broadly neutralizing antibodies are also not really in phase three trials, but they are in trials um, in, the, um, in the clinic. So the two, um, the ibilizumab is the one drug that has been approved um, for multidrug resistant HIV, and that was just approved on March 6th, so um, up-to-date information. Um, and then um, fostemzivir is in phase three, and I'll talk a little bit about those. So HIV entry inhibitors um, work by preventing the virus from um, entering to, into cells, and there are two different places where they work, the ibilizumab and the fostemzivir. You can see the CD4 attachment um, and um, the different sites of, um, of where they interact to prevent the virus from binding. The ibilizumab is a um, monoclonal antibody that binds the CD4 on host cells and blocks entry. So it's considered really a post-attachment inhibitor. It's active against both the CCR5 and CXCR4 tropic HIV. And what's really nice about this new class of drugs is it wouldn't be expected to have cross-resistance with anything else we have, so it would be considered to be active. Um, it is given by infusion, and initially an IV infusion of um, um, 2,000 milligrams, and then it's given every two weeks, so that's fairly frequent. The duration of the infusions is only about 10 to 30 minutes, however. Um, and so this, this drug was on, went through a really long and winding road of drug development, and as it got closer to being um, able to be approved, there were fewer and fewer multidrug resistant patients to study, and they really had to reach out. And I, I think some of you in the room were participated in the studies that led to this approval of this drug, but it was really, a, it was really hard to find the patients and, and get the studies done. Um, so this is the phase three trial. So these were 40 heavily pretreated people with three class resistance, um, and they, they were really looking for just some evidence of a viral load drop. So they only really were hoping to see a half a log drop, um, and they had a, a period of um, observation, and then they um, gave the loading dose. And then they, were, they had sort of two groups. Either you had no active drugs or you had at least one. Um, and th they basically, you know, gave one or more active drugs and then looked at the viral load um, at week 24, and about half of the patients got to be less than 200. So the bar is a little bit lower when you're heavily pretreated and you have a lot of resistance um, to get approval. And so then there was expanded access and viral suppression to week 48 was monitored. And you can see that these are, you know, we usually look at the percent less than 50, but in this context, they're looking at the median viral load reduction, not, um, you know, in the, in the bars. And you can see that the um, viral load reduction on the log scale across the time points. But the mean viral load reduction was about 1.6 logs, and the percent with less than 50 copies at week 24 was 43%. Um, so that was approved on March 6th. And how many people here have ever given ibilizumab? Okay, so pretty, pretty um, good use. Um, Fostemzivir is also, this one is an oral attachment inhibitor. Um, it's a pro-drug, and it binds to GP120 and inhibits the virus from attaching to CD4. This is currently in phase three trials in heavily pretreated people with evidence of virologic failure. And these are really, as I said, really difficult studies to do 
there, and there are people who have zero active drugs. And so what they've done in this is kind of had a randomized cohort on the top and a non-randomized cohort on the bottom. And in the randomized cohort, three to one, they get the blinded drug plus the failing regimen or the blinded placebo plus failing just for the first eight days. And then they go on to open label with optimized background. And then for the non-randomized group, they actually just get the drug um, and optimize their background as best they can. So um, this is the um, early data from their phase three trial. So you can see in placebo, you wouldn't expect a huge decline, um, about 0.7 um, log reduction in viral load at day eight. And then on the right, looking at the virologic response through 24 weeks, um, the randomized cohort and the non-randomized cohort getting up to the you know, 70 to 77% um, uh, undetectable using different cutoffs of less than 40 or less than 200 or less than 400. So when you have to slice it by different levels of viral load reduction, um, sort of interesting. but. They're definitely seeing an added benefit to this in addition to optimized background therapy for people with a lot of resistance. Now, I don't know whether there are any plans to ever combine two different attachment inhibitors or whether you would expect there to be any additional benefit from having two. I think that's something that remains to be seen. This drug is um, regulatory submissions for this are currently anticipated in the next year. And then also their monoclonal antibodies against CCR5. This is the Pro140. Um, how many people here have ever been involved with Pro140 studies or use? Yeah, okay, a little bit. So this um, is given by a weekly subcutaneous injection. Um, there's a single drug maintenance of suppression in patients with virologic suppression for two years. Um, and then the one-week randomized placebo-controlled trial. So really short-term um, periods of exposing people to, in, you know, a single new drug. This, this study is um, people who are failing their current ART um, and have CCR5 tropic drug and resistance to three classes uh, or two or more classes. And then they look at um, viral load change over a week and saw a statistically significant reduction in viral load in those who got the Pro140 compared to placebo. And they're allowing people to continue who were, um, who responded for another 24 weeks and optimizing their art. And then finally, the maturation inhibitors um, work at the stage of HIV replication where the um, protease enzyme is putting together the mature virion and they inhibit that and leads to immature viruses being produced. Um, this one study was presented at CROI this year, or IAS last year. One of the compounds in development was halted due to GI toxicity. So then just in the last couple of seconds on the horizon, broadly neutralizing antibodies, and we heard about this from Rafi. This is a whole new class of drugs that, of compounds that work in a different way by inhibiting the virus, um, and they likely as individual agents are not going to be successful because the, the virus will escape their, their um, attempt to be neutralized, but multiple um, non-overlapping areas of neutralization could be very effective, and if they could be developed into long-acting compounds that could be given subcutaneously, they really may have a role in, in long-term art, in, in suppression and maintenance. And 
Um, I think that um, the, one of the ones, BCN, BNC 117, 3 BNC 117, was studied in people who were on ART and suppressed, and they got the antibody and stopped their ART, and they showed sort of a uh, decline that led for a short period of time. So I think we look for studies of these in combination, and as was mentioned this morning, the tri-specific antibodies um, are really exciting. Um, there are other drugs in the pipeline, just a picture to name some of them, just to know there are things that are out there, and it's always good to check if you have patients who are multi-drug resistant to, uh, before making a decision. Um, I'm not going to say much about them, but I do want to highlight a point that Tony made this morning, and that is um, challenges to studying new drugs are real. Um, the treatment-naive population is fortunately declining, and all of our enthusiasm for same-day starts of ART and getting people on treatment right away is making it really hard to um, have a conversation about whether you would want to participate in an investigational agent. So the periods of exposure for these drugs are getting shorter and shorter. Um, and then also just really having people with, with such good options for treatment want to participate is getting more challenging. So we, these studies do often require multiple sites to conduct and complete, and they take longer periods of time. But I think we'll continue uh, to get there and to, to make progress. So just last second, just to summarize, so new treatments, we do have Bictegravir FTC-TAP, which was approved in Duravarine, the NRTI, NNRTI um, under review. We've had advances in two-drug therapy that I think we're going to need to, I think people are starting to think more about as patients get older, have more renal insufficiency and other things, um, and there'll be new combinations with more data. Uh, Long-acting therapy is on the horizon. It's really getting closer, and the studies are looking very promising, and there are new compounds that are coming along, including the um, EFDA. And then we do have some new um, options for people with multidrug-resistant um, HIV and other things that are in development. So I'd like to thank you, and I'd also like to thank Raj Gandhi, who um, provided slides of use for this talk. So thanks for your attention. Thanks, Judy. That was really terrific. Um, can I just ask you, you, you know, just as we sort of gather the questions from the group, you know, you made the point that, you know, we've so moved towards integrase-based three-drug therapy because it's so well-tolerated. And, you know, do you really see us sort of derailing that pathway and going back to non-nukes? And, and where does this two drugs for some? Are we ever going to have two drugs for all? And where, where do you think that's going as the three drug combinations in our space are so, so well tolerated? Yeah, so I think for the um, integrase versus NNRTI for first-line therapy, you know, we, with more time, with every new drug that, you know, it comes out new and shiny and we're all excited about all of the benefits and then we get more experience with it and we start to learn more. So if we really do start to see problems in people taking integrase inhibitors, um, having other options will be good. And ultimately, we need comparative studies to um, understand those things. And it used to be that when we compared drugs, the whole focus was on viral suppression. But now the focus is on, you know, it's on lipids, it's on fat, it's on quality of life, it's on central nervous system and sleep. And so I think kind of having a comprehensive comparison, because right now people are going to take these drugs for the rest of their lives. So we do need to make sure that we are offering the best um, and the best tolerated long-term therapy.
Great. So a couple of questions from the group. Um, uh, are there in vitro studies looking at the efficacy of Bictegravir in integrase-resistant virus? Um, I think there's some in vitro data about its activity against um, drug resistance, but um, there isn't clinical data. And I don't know the full details on which exact mutations, but I'm sure that that could be found. And it might even be in the package insert. I don't know. Okay. Um, uh, in the cabotegravir injection studies, when the regimen was stopped, subtherapeutic uh, levels of that integrase in, uh, inhibitor cabotegravir were found up to one year after cessation. Might this persistence lead to pan-class resistance in those that stop treatment? Okay, so this is a really good point, and um, because RAFI's involved in the cabotegravir for prevention studies, they've had to deal with this in the studies in terms of what do you do after you give the person their last injection, how do you follow them, and what do you, do you give? In those studies, they're giving a Truvada tail, tenofovir um, FTC, for prevention as the, tail, as the drug wears out of the system. Um, I, Tony, if you want to talk about what happens in the cabotegravir treatment trials to people when the study ends um, in terms of how that's managed, because I think it's a really, really good question um, that we'll, we need to grapple with when we move these into the clinic. Of course, if someone decides they don't want to be on therapy, they're not going to be on therapy. So certainly we have to uh, consider that and take that into uh, account whenever we think about prescribing these. So um, it, it is a concern. Do you want to say anything about the, your experience with using these in the clinical trial setting for treatment and what uh, participant response has been and injection site reaction tolerability? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that this is one of the things that's been really interesting about this trial. You know, um, initially we talked to people about an injection, and sometimes people were horrified that we would even think about doing an injection. Um, and then they would think about it, and they would say, well, yeah, I'd be willing to participate in your trial. And then if people were randomized not to get the injection, then they were really upset because they really wanted the injection. Uh, so I think that, you know, there's a lot going on in people's minds about uh, the fear of shots. Uh, but what we've really found consistently in people who were on the injectables is they love them. And so, yes, you know, 92% of patients who get the injections report some sort of injection site reaction. There's soreness there, there's tenderness, they know they got an injection, but nobody wants to come off of the trial. And the thing I really think, you know, as, a, as kind of a provider, the thing that I think is so fun is it's really changed the way that people think about their HIV therapy. Um, you know, they're not thinking, oh, I've got to go into the clinic to get a shot because I'm sick and I have HIV. You know, they come up to the counter, they're like, hey, I'm here for my shot. <laughs> and so it's a very positive, uplifting thing. And I don't think they're thinking about HIV at all. I think they're thinking this is a part of their healthcare maintenance. Um, so in that sense, I, I love the way it's changing the, the perspective uh, about, uh, about the therapy, that it's not something onerous and to prevent disease. It's just about staying healthy. No, that's good. I think we take for granted what it's like to take pills every day um, and, and have the fear of what might happen if you, if you miss them. So that's a helpful perspective. Thank you. And it also prevents me from having to answer more questions. <laughs> Just kidding. 
I think the other issue, though, that is that you know we don't know the answer, right, to what's going to happen if people do disappear and abscond after getting one of these injections, right? Because presumably, at some point, these long-acting drugs are going to decline in their levels, and viremia is going to recrudesce, and there is the potential for getting resistance, and we don't know how often that's going to happen or what the consequences are, and that's going to be something that we're really probably only going to find out when this, you know, is, is FDA approved and gets wider clinical practice, but it's something I think we sort of hand-wring a lot about. Yeah, and I, I think the other, I mean, the other area are the previously non-adherent population um, and what the role of these drugs are going to be for people who've struggled with adherence. There is going to be a study starting later this year um, in the AIDS clinical trials group for people who have um, been unable to be unde remain undetectable on current treatment to have the option of going on a study where they get randomized to, after first getting on a regimen that suppresses them, to long-acting versus um, standard therapy. And we'll see for that very difficult to treat population um, how this works out, so. And, and that's, I think a lot of us think that that is sort of a unique population that could really benefit um, from these long-acting injectables, but we also have a lot of trepidation because they're also the people most likely to um, disappear and, and potentially have this complication of, of missing injections. Yeah, so it's gonna be interesting. Uh, another question, uh, every clinic has patients that are resistant to all PIs and NRTIs and NRTIs, but somehow manage to be suppressed on a five or six drug complicated regimen. When and if do you think it will be possible uh, to simplify these burdensome reg regimens, and how do you do that? Yeah, no, that is a great question, and I have people in my practice who um, you know, want that upgrade to the new regimen. And I was like, you know, you can have it, but you can't. And they keep saying, like, when is it going to be my turn to get that? And I, th I think as we have um, more options in new classes that we can combine that aren't cross-resistant with these older classes of drugs, I think we'll be able to do it. And I think it's something we need to aspire to do, um, given how complicated some regimens are that people are still managing. Uh, a question about um, uh, the role of doravirine in the upcoming sort of market where things are becoming more generic, price wars are ongoing, different companies have different shares of the market, what we've seen happen with hep C treatments, jockeying and price mongering. Um, do you see doravirine sort of being a me too drug or how do you see it into the financial landscape? I, you know, I don't, I don't speculate on things like that. I don't know, <laughs> really. <laughs> I, I, it really depends, I guess. It'll depend. You know, we are, we are. I wasn't kidding during the panel when I, you know, I said what the provider has to go through to prescribe a drug can be an issue. So there is a lot that's happening with how drugs are priced and what different plans, you know, make that their preferred reg uh, regimen as things go generic. I think as providers, we are going to have to advocate for what's the best for, for our patients based on data. And I, I did have an experience recently working in the hospital where somebody, we wanted to start them on treatment because we thought they had acute HIV. And the health plan that this person had, this pretty expensive health plan, their rec the, the things that I could get without a prior approval for first-line treatment included topranavir. 
And I could not believe that. So I, I think that, you know, sometimes the, um, there's a disconnect between health plans and science in terms of how they're deciding which regimens to make available. And, um, and we have to continue to advocate for, for our patients in that regard. But I don't know where, how things are going to play out with Duravarine. Did you use Topranavir? No, <laughs> I did that not. That was a joke. OK. Um, it, considering the potential for mitochondrial toxicity with nukes um, and our aging population, do you see these um, nukes sparing or fewer nuke regimens having a particularly role in, in aging populations because of frailty and other things that we've sort of come to be yeah, associated with nukes? I, it's a great question. I, I think that mitochondrial toxicity, you know, we've always thought about that as being related to thymidine nucleosides. Um, there, there also could be mitochondrial toxicity related to HIV itself, and, and I think long-term HIV, and that's something that we need to keep in mind so that just switching around the drugs may not be all that we need to do. But I think it, it's just important that in these studies, when they're done, um, that we look at more than just what happens to the viral load. We look at bone density, we look at you know, other measures of, of of patient outcomes, and we look at that in long-term therapy. So certainly for renal disease, I think there is a role um, for nuke sparing in terms of preventing renal disease. Um, for frailty, I don't, I just don't know. And, you know, I know a lot of sort of the pharmaceutical industry trials have very much focused on just virologic outcomes or some of the more common um, risk factors for metabolic complications. Um, you know, I know you've been very involved in the design and conduct of these studies and the, within the ACTG, looking at these longer-term outcomes. Could you talk a little bit about sort of what's on the horizon in terms of what things you're sort of trying to tease out that, that people might want to know about that studies are ongoing? Yeah, I mean, I, I do think, you know, you, you are starting to see more. So, you know, now all studies look at lipids, and then some do look at inflammatory markers, and some will look at bone. Um, I think longer term, looking at markers of functional status and uh, frailty among older people is important. Um, and then, uh, and, and also just looking at a constellation of outcomes as well, and not just the, you know, the one virologic outcome. Um, so we're kind of back to, looking at quality of life really as a long-term outcome. Additional questions for Judy. Okay, thank you, Judy, it's really fantastic.